Well, thank you for being here this morning. As we continue in our worship, we open God's Word together. Uh, I invite you to turn, please, to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We are in the beginnings of a new series of messages on the subject of growing in Christ. It's uh, interesting uh, and telling that uh, spiritual growth uh, in the Bible uh, is likened in many ways to the natural growth process that we see in the world around us uh, of crops and gardens and uh, the seasons in which they grow. Uh, in fact, Mark uh, 4, 26 through 29 that we looked at last time shows us that there is a process uh, in growth in the natural realm. Uh, and that same uh, uh, natural process illustrates for us the growth that happens uh, among God's people uh, and in the kingdom of God. We also saw last time that uh, for crops to grow, uh, good soil is needed. Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, the parable of the soils, that uh, the soil is likened to the heart of the individual that receives the seed, which would be the Word of God. Um, that happens when the Word of God is uh, received, it's understood, it's believed, and it's applied. It produces fruit. Some of the fruit that uh, the Word of God produces in our life is the fruit of righteousness, a righteous and a holy life. The Word of God also impacts our lives, producing the fruit of good works, that we do things in Jesus' name, being directed and empowered by the Spirit of God. The Word of God also impacts our lives when it's applied and it produces the fruit of the Holy Spirit that we see enumerated for us in Galatians chapter 5. And then uh, there's also just the overall fruit of the Christian life that becomes genuine evidence of genuine and saving faith. Jesus said, by their fruit uh, you will know them. Our hearts, uh, our lives, uh, as in the natural realm, uh, need from time to time cultivation. Uh, cultivation, as we looked at last time, requires the removal uh, of those things which would, could hinder the seed from growing and producing fruit. Uh, you could say that basically it's the removal of reed, uh, weeds and rocks and other debris uh, which hinder or prevent uh, growth. But when you look at that, you might ask yourself the question, well, what are some of the weeds and rocks that can be in uh, our lives that can stifle uh, and keep the Word of God from producing its intended fruit in our lives? Let me suggest that some of these weeds and rocks can be our attitudes, our mindsets, our very motivations, the postures that we take, the responses that we have in given situations, and then the overall actions that we can uh, do uh, and can express either towards God uh, or towards others. And if we're not careful, and if they are the wrong types of 
mindsets and responses and postures and actions and words, they can actually stifle and stunt our spiritual growth. Um, we will look at a number of these weeds and rocks uh, and how we are to pull and remove them uh, so we can grow in our relationship with God and produce fruit uh, unto the Lord. This morning we're going to look at one of those weeds that impede our growth uh, as believers and hinder spiritual fruit and spiritual progress. It's the weed of unforgiveness, which may have taken root in us uh, at some point. In order to understand unforgiveness, we need to understand what is forgiveness. Uh, that's a, a good place for us to start. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the word that is used frequently for forgiveness, uh, or the active form to forgive, means to remove or to take up or, or take away. That's just the word itself. To understand it, it has to be put in the context. It's, it's used in the context uh, of one's guilt that comes to him or to her having broken God's law. You and I break the law. We are, we are guilty before the law. Well, all of us are guilty of, of breaking God's law. We incur a guilt you know, that, that we have broken that law and there is a, a penalty that uh, results. Forgiveness uh, is linked with that idea of guilt, that you and I take up that guilt the moment we break uh, God's law. It's, it's, it's put upon us. Uh, but the interesting thing is that the Bible tells us that that guilt could be taken up by someone else. Isaiah 53, verse 4, tells us that surely he took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. He took up our infirmities, which certainly can be understood in the natural sense of, of our physical weaknesses, but also it, it has behind it the idea of our spiritual infirmities, the, the sins that we have committed. In fact, Isaiah gets very specific in verse 6 where he says, we all like sheep have gone astray and each one has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was willing to take up our iniquity when it was laid uh, upon him. It's also significant that this idea of forgiveness is linked with the Old Testament sacrifices. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 1 and verse 4, one of the sacrifices that was to be offered on behalf of the one who had sinned we're told, verse 4, that the individual was to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. To, to cover the fact that he had broken God's law. When you go to chapter 4 of Leviticus, again in connection with a sacrifice that was made, and verse 20, we're told, in the same way, the priest will make atonement for them. This is talking about a collective sin of the congregation. He's going to make atonement, and it says, and they will be 
forgiven. It will be removed. It will be taken away. It will be taken up. How? Because that sacrifice that was offered covered their sin. The word atonement means to cover. It covered that sin. In verse 26, uh, again, of Leviticus chapter 4, in this same way the priest will make atonement for a man's sin. There it's very specific. And he will be forgiven. So a sacrifice is made in order to provide a covering for the sin, the infraction, the breaking of God's law. And as we come to the, the scriptures uh, and what God says of us as individuals and as humanity as a whole, if we're honest, we realize that all of us have broken God's law. The breaking of that law is a sin and it becomes that which separates and breaks our relationship with God. So how is sinful humanity, sinful man, sinful woman, sinful child going to have a relationship with a holy God if there is sin that, that is in the way and becomes the, the, the stumbling block, the hindrance, the, the impedance? God provided a way through a sacrificial system in the Old Testament. But the interesting thing is that those Old Testament sacrifices never took away the sin of the people. You come to the New Testament and the understanding of forgiveness, uh, and God is dealing with our sins themselves, not just covering them for a time and for a season. You are aware that uh, the Day of Atonement was to be uh, observed by the children of Israel, God's people, on a yearly basis. And every year they had to make that sacrifice over and over and over. Not to mention all the sacrifices that individuals brought uh, before the Lord. And I've often asked myself the question with those numerous Old Testament sacrifices and, and when people were to bring those sacrifices, how long did they last? And what I mean by that is this. You, you sinned against God you bring that, that sacrifice, you offer that sacrifice, your sin is atoned for. What happens if you leave the, the place of the tabernacle and go back to your dwelling and sin again? Oh boy, now I've got to get another lamb. I've got to get some more doves. I've got to go back again, go back again. And that was the, the repetitive nature of the Old Testament sacrificial system, which was never intended by God to, to deal with the root problem of man's heart, sinful heart. That was going to be fulfilled in the New Testament through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, he made a sacrifice that was once for all. And our sins were not merely covered, they were taken up by him. They were removed. They were taken away from us. In fact, the word in the New Testament for forgiveness means uh, the remission of sins, indicating the release uh, from them. The word uh, forgive means to cancel a debt. When you and I break the law, we're indebted to the law. There's a debt that has to be paid. Well, the Lord Jesus paid that debt for you uh, and for me. Notice, if you would, uh, uh, Jesus' words in Luke chapter 7 for a moment. Luke chapter 7 and verse 42. Well, verse 41, um, 
in the context, there was uh, Simon, who was a Pharisee, who was hosting a dinner for, the, for Jesus, and uh, a woman came in who had a, a reputation. Um, she uh, anointed his feet. She, she uh, um, kissed his feet. Um, and Simon was offended by this because not so much the actions of the woman, but because of the type of woman that this lady was. She was a, a, a sinner, it says here uh, at the end of verse 39. So Jesus takes this occasion to, to sort of teach Simon some things and, and you and I some things. And he says, uh, uh, he tells him this, uh, this story. He says, two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50 Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them do you suppose would love more? And Simon responds, I guess, the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Uh, when we realize just how sinful we are and the debt that has been canceled on our behalf, the more we are prompted to love the Lord. And it's interesting that Jesus says of this woman and her actions, verse 47, I tell you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she has loved much. She's indicating her love for the Lord by, by these demonstrations of devotion towards him. And notice that. He says, her sins are forgiven, her debt has been canceled. Now, God does not, nor can he, merely overlook sin or just dismiss, him, dismiss them uh, as though it never happened. He says in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20, the soul that sins will die. The wages of sin is death. But the good news is this, that Jesus Christ paid the debt of our sin by his death on the cross and his shed blood. Notice with me, if you would, Hebrews chapter 9 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22, it says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. In order for you and I to be forgiven before God, there has to be blood that was shed. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. That's the penalty that, that, that is incurred by us when we break uh, God's law. But notice what it says here in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. I alluded to this earlier. And by that will, referring to the sacrifice of Christ, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now look over at verse 18 of Hebrews 10. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. So what am I saying in, in all this? What I'm trying to get across to, to you this morning is that if you are in Jesus Christ... If you have trusted him as your Savior and as your Lord, you are forgiven all your sins. All of them. They've been taken away from you. They've been taken up by Christ. And the, your debt 
of sin has been canceled. Why is it canceled? Because it was paid in full. And did you know that the word that Jesus spoke, the, one of the final words on the cross was, it is finished. And you know that that term, it is finished, tetelestai, was put on a receipt when it, a, a, a mortgage or a debt was paid in full. And his word to you and to me was, it's paid in full. You are forgiven. Thus, those who come to Jesus Christ in faith, seeking the forgiveness of sin, are completely forgiven all their sin by virtue of his sacrifice uh, on the cross. In fact, Colossians chapter 2 uh, indicates this for us. Notice, if you would with me, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. How did he do that? He forgave all our sins. And how is forgiveness secured? Verse 14, having canceled the written code with its regulations that were against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. The thing I want you to see here is that phrase, the written code that was against us. One of the ways that that is better translated is canceling the record of our debt. And how did he do it? He took our debt on the, on the cross. All of our sins were put on him on the cross, and he died in our place. And God says, it's paid in full. You are forgiven. You're a forgiven child of God. You're forgiven. Isn't it interesting that uh, um, in response to so great salvation, the believer in Jesus Christ is called, likewise, uh, to forgive others. I forgive because I myself have been forgiven. The first question we need to ask, though, is have we received his forgiveness? Have you received God's forgiveness toward you in Jesus Christ? And all you need to do is ask him. Acknowledge your sins. Desire in your heart to want to please God and turn from sin. And ask Christ to forgive you, and he will indeed forgive you. But you know, not only are we ones in Christ who have received forgiveness, we're called to forgive others. Colossians chapter 3, if you're in Colossians, turn over a page to Colossians chapter 3 where we read these words. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now notice verse 13. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against another. To what extent? Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now think about that. In light of, of Christ's sacrifice and forgiveness in which he forgives all, Believing people are called upon to forgive uh, one another as they reflect Christ. That brings us to Matthew chapter 18. And 
I'm just going to be uh, highlighting a few things for us here in that. Because Christ calls us to forgive uh, one another and to demonstrate that, uh, Peter asked the question, to what extent? In Jesus' day, the rabbis taught that uh, forgiveness is to be offered towards another individual when they offend you, no more than three times. Maybe that's the original three strikes and you're out rule. You know, maybe that's where it originated. They thought that fourth was going, going, going too far. So when Peter heard this uh, discourse beginning at verse 15 about forgiveness and the need for that, he started to think about what he has probably heard his rabbis teaching him all his uh, life growing up. And so he thought in his mind maybe, well, the Lord's going to be impressed with this. What if I double what the, what the rabbis say, not just three, but six, and add one for good measure? After all, seven is the number of completeness. How often shall my brother sin against me? Seven times and I forgive him? Peter probably thought pretty good of himself. That's pretty good. That's, that's really going the extra mile. Not just the extra mile. He's going to really pat me on the back and say, Peter, you're really coming along. But boy, was he shocked when the Lord responded to him and said to him, verse 22, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. I'm sure Peter's mouth just dropped open. 490 times? Now, I don't think that the Lord gave that number that you and I are to carry around a notebook and a checklist and say, you know what? You're up to about 327. You're getting kind of close there. The, the, the point is this. He, he's saying to Peter, to the disciples, to us as Christ followers who have been forgiven, that our extension of forgiveness should be limitless. We don't keep account. Because once it's forgiven, it's forgiven. Amen. I had one of the professors in Bible college use this illustration. His wife gave him permission to use it in class of the idea of forgiveness. But apparently, uh, he had said something from the pulpit that really offended his wife. And, <laughs> and so, so she left the service. And he continued with his message and things like that. And when he got home, you know, he, he found out what it was that offended her by what he said. Maybe made a reference to her that he shouldn't have. So he asked his forgiveness, her forgiveness. And they talked it over, and she says, I forgive you. But it was interesting. He says, lo and behold, after the evening service that night on that Sunday, you know, and they got home after the service, she brought it up again. And, and he was like, wait a minute. I thought you said you forgave me of this. Why are you bringing it up again? And they eventually resolved it. But his point was this. When we forgive someone, we don't bring it back and say, oh, by the way, I remember what you did. You might remember it, but you know, we don't hold it against them. That's part of the forgiveness that we offer. Uh, and Jesus is, is saying this, uh, and then he, he follows it up with this story, uh, verse 23, that the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began this, the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 
since he had not been able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay his debt. Now, the thing you have to understand here is that one talent, one, took over a year to accumulate in terms of wealth. This man apparently had embezzled or, or had been not careful with the king's money and owed him 10,000 talents. The servant, verse 26, falls on his knees before him and begged him, be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay you everything back. Okay, now wait a minute. It takes a year plus to make one talent and you owe me 10,000 talents. How are you ever going to pay that back? Unless you have a sure thing in the stock market, which there is no sure thing, it ain't going to happen. But you know what? Notice what it says here. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. That was a lot for that king to do. 10,000 talents? When one is a year's wages? You would think that this man would be floating on cloud nine, as we say, walking on air, and just the birds are singing more gracefully, and the flowers are more fragrant, and the sky is more blue, and, you know. And so, lo and behold, he comes across a, a, a fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii, which is a denarii, one was a day's wage, so a hundred of them is, you know, a hundred days wage. You know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a full year's, it's not a whole talent. And it says here, he found him, and he, he, he grabbed him, verse 28, and began to choke him and say, pay back what you owe. Did you notice the contrast between the, the master's, uh, the, the servant's master and, and him, the servant? And he's, he's grabbing him by the throat and say, pay what you owe. The man, again, his fellow servant, verse 29, begged him, be patient with me, and I'll pay you back. Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called his servant in and said, You wicked servant, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Verse 33, Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured, the tormentors, until he should pay back all he owed. Now, that's not the, that's not the sticking point in this story. It's the words that Jesus said next that are troublesome. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from the heart. You say to yourself, well, wait a minute, didn't you just say earlier in the message, I'll go back and play the tape, that Christ forgave all our sins? Is this picturing God who will take back that forgiveness? I don't think it's saying that. Remember, this parable, this story is teaching about forgiveness between individuals. And Jesus is saying that, that if there 
is unforgiveness in your heart and in your life, it will impede, it will hinder, it will stifle your walk and your relationship with God. Notice there, he was handed over to the tormentors. Maybe you've experienced this or maybe you've observed it in others, but when you have unforgiveness in your life, isn't it bothersome and burdensome to you? For some people, it even becomes a bitterness in their lives because they're unwilling to forgive someone that has offended them, not realizing, even as believers, that God in Christ has forgiven you everything that you've ever done against him. Bitterness results from unforgiveness. Um, I was trying to think of the, uh, the different ways that this uh, expresses itself. You know, to hold a grudge or to fail to forgive a fellow person, a fellow believer, hinders spiritual growth, and it grows uh, like a, a weed. You can become burdened with that. You can almost become consumed with that unforgiveness. Um, the idea of being tormented, maybe you've experienced this. There are some people who are just, just cantankerous and, and bitter uh, and, and, and contrary to everyone around them. I wonder if part of the root of that kind of response to the world and individuals is unforgiveness. It's like the jailers, the tormentors, the torturers that, 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 that come against you and hold you in their grip. And the purpose is that God desires that you and I forgive. He's not doing that to punish. He's doing that to bring a conviction to your heart and to mind and say, deal with this. Deal with this. Because if you don't, it's just going to be a stumbling block. It's going to be that weed that's going to infest your whole garden of your life. And it's going to grow bitter fruit that everybody's going to taste that's around you. Now, an unforgiving spirit will come out and will manifest itself in a lot of different ways. I mentioned a few. Anger, a sour disposition, a critical spirit, always being stirred up inside, maybe not talking to one another, keeping your distance from someone else. In a previous church that I served, there were two individuals that were at odds with one another, unwilling to forgive, and the one would come in on one side and sit, and the one would come on the other side and sit, and the two of them never even looked at one another. Let me ask you the question, how can you truly worship God if you have that kind of burden in your heart and in your life, that unforgiveness that is there? Maybe that's why Jesus says, before you come and offer your gift, go and make things right with your brother. Then come and offer your gift to God. It becomes a stumbling block and an impedance 
uh, to our walk with God. Not to mention the fact that these idea of tormentors could even be, if I may say, the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you are wrong in this circumstance. Let me ask you, are you willing to forgive and are you extending forgiveness to someone who has offended you? Maybe the Lord needs to deal with your heart and mind first. Let me suggest uh, some of the things that we need to do in order to forgive. The starting point is always humble prayer. I must go to the Lord and ask him to examine me. You know, we're told in the Psalms, Psalm 133, uh, or excuse me, 139, verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The starting point for all of us is to come before the Lord humbly in prayer and say, Lord, examine my heart. And we know if we have something against a brother or a sister because of an offense that they have committed against us. We know that. We maybe don't even have to ask the Lord to examine our hearts. But you know what? We might still have that there and not realize it. After all, coming before the Lord in prayer might be the opportunity that the Lord is looking for that he might say, I may be the one that caused the offense and don't know it. Additionally, I need the direction, the presence, and the enabling of the Holy Spirit to do what is right. I just determine in my own strength to do this, it will, it will fall flat. But I need the Lord, I need the Spirit of God, I need direction from the Word of God to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord when it comes to offering and extending forgiveness. And let me just say this, only Jesus can enable me or you to forgive as God has forgiven us. Let me say that again. Only Jesus can enable you or me to forgive as God has given us. That is not uh, resident in any of us, even as redeemed people. It's only through Jesus Christ. You've heard the, the old adage, you know, to err is human, to forgive divine. It is true. Only God can enable us to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. Secondly, I need to have a conversation. Not only do I need to pray, I need to have a conversation, maybe more than one. If you go earlier in Matthew chapter 15, and I'm not going to take the time to, 18, excuse me, to, to develop this, beginning of verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. The first thing you're supposed to do is to go and to show. You need to take a step and go to that individual that has caused an offense. It's not their, their responsibility, the offender, to come. You, the offendee, are supposed to go and to have that conversation. I remember in the First Alliance church that I served, uh, we were in a small building. We were eventually built a new building. Uh, and I remember during the, the morning time, we would have a time of greeting. It was a small group, uh, probably 50, 60 people, very, very small. Uh, and uh, uh, we used to go around and shake hands. And I would go down the aisle and shake hands here, shake hands here, shake hands here. And, and you know, people would stand at the back, and it was a very small back spot, so there wasn't a whole lot of room. Uh, and, and I noticed after a couple of weeks that there was one couple that, that, that wasn't around much. And I thought, that's odd. 
You know, they, they're kind of distant from me. So I finally got on, the, uh, got on the phone and I called and I said, Could I, can I talk with you for a minute? I says, have I offended you? And the person said, yes. And I said, well, can we talk about it? He says, well, not over the phone. So I got in my car and actually went to their house. And we sat down at their table and had a conversation. And, and unbeknownst to me, this was not intentional. When we were going around shaking hands, for whatever reason, for like three weeks in a row, as soon as I got to where they would always stand, I walked away. It was not intentional on my part. I was not trying to ignore them. I had nothing against them. But in his mind, I offended him because I had something against him. And you know, we went there. I asked his forgiveness. I let him know that, uh, that I was sorry. It was never intentional. I was not trying to do that. And lo and behold, he was one of the best friends I had at that congregation going forward. That's not to say I probably didn't offend him again. But you know, you need and I need to go and we need to show the person what, why, why, what is it that's broken our relationship, our, our, our conversation with one, and have a conversation with them. But if they won't listen, the scripture then says you are to, then you are to take others. Not, not to be gang up on them and say, you're the one that's wrong but to invite others to pray, to invite others to give godly counsel, to, for others to, to stand and maybe, maybe sort of be on the sidelines to make sure that both of you are, are understanding one another. Um, and then if, they, if that does not bring resolution, if the person that caused the offense to you is still not willing to be reconciled and, and, and you're trying to do that, you're to tell it to the church. Now, that's something we don't typically do a lot of, but word gets out. But the purpose of telling it to the church is not to start the gossip line. The purpose of telling it to the church is so that the church would pray, that God would intervene and, and bring a resolution to this situation, because brothers and sisters in Christ should not be at odds with one another. That's not God's intention. And if... And, and, if they refuse to listen to even the church, meaning an official from the church or the church officially trying to get in and, and, and resolve this, and there's still a refusal, then he says you're to treat them, as it says here, uh, as you would uh, uh, a pagan or a tax collector. Now, just be careful of how you read that, because Jesus is not saying then you then sort of sort of shun that person and push them aside and never talk to them and just sort of turn your back on them and leave them alone. Is that the way Christ treats sinners? Quite the opposite. He's a friend of sinners. God wants you and me to even the person who is unrepentant and unwilling to, 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 to accept their, their responsibility and offense to continue to show them kindness and grace. After all, we're told in Romans chapter 2 and verse, verse 4, don't you know that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And why do we do that? Because we're reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ. This does not mean that one should accept or excuse continuing sinful behavior or abuse. But it does mean that you want to see that individual not only reconciled to you, but reconciled to God.
And then thirdly, you extend forgiveness. And when you do that, when you genuinely say, I'm willing to forgive you, mean it from your heart, as it says in Scripture, to forgive from the heart, some will accept that. Some will acknowledge their blame and their culpability and their sin. Others maybe say, it's all your fault. You've extended forgiveness. You've done what Christ has said. And then fourthly, you and I are to trust Christ if that becomes the outcome, that there is no resolution, and you've done all before God that you've tried to make that right and to bring restitution and to bring reconciliation, then you and I trust Christ to bring transformation and healing, which we're doing through the whole process anyway. So what about you? Has the weed of unforgiveness hindered your walk with God and your spiritual growth? Let me encourage you, let me challenge you, let me exhort you to bring this matter to the Lord even this morning and to resolve by God's grace to make things right in that relationship that you have with others that has been broken by offense. Shall we pray? Our Father, this message this morning certainly uh, is, is probing and it's challenging and it's not easy, especially, Father, when our emotions and our feelings and our perceptions of things can sometimes cloud the matter. And, and Lord, uh, forgiveness is not lessening the offense or overlooking it as though it is nothing. There's real offense that is there. And it's our prayer, Father, that we would, as your believing people, not allow unforgiveness to become that weed that impedes our spiritual growth. Maybe we be willing before you, O oh God, to deal with that, even while it's called today. And Father, may you enable us through the Spirit to extend forgiveness, even as you have given us forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Father, help us to be a forgiving people and thus reflect our Lord. And may the result be that we would grow deeper in our relationship and walk with you, and that we would be greater witness and greater influence and a greater presence of Christ to those that are around us, that they too might see in us the life of Christ and desire him. For Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.